I believe that uh, God has called my wife and I to plant a church. Uh, we had a city in mind very early. I know some of you guys were part of those conversations. Um, as of late, uh, just kind of going through the washer, we're looking actually at this point to plant a church in the West Valley, and we're really excited about it. Um, I know that brings up a lot of who, what, when, where, whys. So if you have uh, any questions, find me afterwards, and I'd love to, to answer those. Now, if this is your first time, let me say this. Um, I'm not the guy who normally be up here. There's an older gentleman, and you can tell him I said that, um, who, uh, whose name is Frank. He, uh, he's a great dude, loves Jesus, Marathon, Seinfeld, old stuff, and um, he's, uh, he's a great dude, and, and he'll normally be up here. You'll see me about eight to ten times a year. Uh, and uh, actually, Josh is leading today. We have another guy named Sean Johnson, but Josh did a great job. Josh, I, don't, I think you're in the back. Yeah! We clapping at Arcadia. We're getting serious. Hey, do me a favor, rope, uh, open up, roping up, that's how we say Romans, open up to Romans, um, open up to Romans chapter three. Um, here's what I want to do. If, uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, okay, grab the, uh, the Bible that's in front of you on the seat right under you. Um, just take it, honestly. Frank's not here, so just take the Bible. Um, take the chair. Um, so take that, op- open that up. Now, if you have a phone or whatever, I would honestly, there's, there's something called, go to the app store real quick and you can do something called YouVersion. It's a great free Bible app and you can read it through there, whatever you need to do. But here's what I want you to do. Chapter three, um, verses 21 um, to 26. And here's what I want to do. I'm not going to reread it. Uh, I want to, as you're looking at that section of verses, I want to put a thrust as to, to what we're doing and why we're doing it. I want to tell you what some people in our history have said about the text that we're going to go through today, okay? So just look at that section of verses right there. Here's some things that people have said. There's a man named Tom Schreiner who recently preached at Sovereign Grace in uh, Louisville. He said this. Uh, he said, when I, when I look at this, when I look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, if I believe Romans is the most important book in the Bible, which he would argue it was, and we don't have time for that, Um, then these are the most important verses in Romans, okay? Martin Luther said this, it is the marrow of theology, specifically talking about this section of verses, the marrow. So you have flesh, you have uh, your, your muscles, you have ligaments. At the core of your leg is bone marrow. Martin Luther would say, this is the marrow of theology, um, this section of verses has been known to, to um, inspire uh, many hymns. One of Ra- is Rock of Ages that I think a lot of you guys might be familiar with. The last one is this. As you're looking at this section of verses, hear what Leon, Moore, uh, Leon Morris says. He's a New Testament scholar. He says this, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Yeah, track with that. So Leon's like, hey, what'd you read last night? Yeah, I don't care. Read chapter three, verses 21 through 26. The most important paragraph ever written, okay? So it's, 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 it's a big deal of what we're going to do today and what we're going to go through today. And I wanna lay my cards out real early, okay? Um, if you don't know me, I tend to get my wheels turning and I'm gonna like just go with this thing. So I wanna kind of systematically put us in a direction and say, here's what we're gonna do. Um, and so here, here it is. What we're gonna do is we're gonna first talk about the what of Christianity, So what did God do in our story? What? What is this? What did God, God coming to earth to save us? Okay, the what of this story. How did God do this? How ultimately is the man Jesus Christ dying on the cross, how does that save us? Okay, and then lastly, why? Why would God not not just save us? Because I think you would say, well, the the reason is that God saved us, but the motive isn't that God saved us. The motive was that God is defending his righteousness. So in this moment, the what, the how, and the why, and the reason I would say this is important for us to know, specifically with this verses, I would say 95% of this world um, knows what Christians believe. 
They know the what of Christianity. They know, yeah, there's this man named Jesus that's due to walk the earth who ended up dying for sin so that people can go to heaven. They know the what, okay? I would say less than 25%, this is just off, off the top of my head, 25% of people know actually how Jesus, this man Jesus who claimed to be God, how him dying on a cross actually saved people. And I would say less than that, maybe 5, 10% actually know why the motive behind Jesus coming to save his people. And, and that's what we're going to work out of. We're going to work in the what, we're going to work in the how, and we're going to work in the why. Now, our verses today are verses 25 and 26, and you think two verses, but this is like super dense, like Arizona dirt dense. It's a lot to go through. It's hard to dig through. We're going to use big lofty words like propitiation and expiation and, uh, you know, claymation, and we're going to do all these different Asians, and it's not going to make a lot of sense at first, um, and so I don't want to just assume you know the what, because up to this point in reading in Romans, we've learned the what. We've learned the what, that Jesus came to die for our sins because we're a broken people. Matter of fact, um, I'll read 23 and 24 so you know the what, and then I'm going to really go at it. Um, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you disagree with that, um, just pick up one of the last you know, 15 weeks in Romans and you'll see how you're wrong. Verse 24, and you are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's the what, like right, essentially, but... The problem is if I just assume to go from the what to the how, you're going to get, it, it will be lost. Like I, I want to really go into detail in this because if we just go to the how, you're like, you're like walking in the middle of Inception, the movie Inception. You're like, well, is Leonardo DiCaprio awake? Is he asleep? Is, I thought he was on the Titanic with that red haired chick. I don't know what's going on. And so there's this sense of you don't really know what's going on. So I want to make sure every single person in this room is on the same page for verses 23 and 24. I'm going to tell a story real quick. Give me 10 minutes to tell this story. And as we tell the story, we're going to go back into this story and see the how, and we're going to see the why. Now, I know a lot of you guys have heard the story I'm about to tell, and I, I give this example a lot, but when, when Corbin was first born, he was six months old, we went and looked at fireworks, and as he was looking at the fireworks, um, he was amazed. It was at a graduation, so we're at this graduation. He's looking at fireworks, and I'm looking across the field, and I'm seeing everybody, and they're talking to each other. They're not even looking up. Fire's exploding in the sky. And, and Corbin is just enthralled with it. He can't stop staring at it. But everyone else, why? Because they spent 20, 30, 40 years on this earth looking at fireworks maybe once or twice a year, and they're used to it. Something that is amazing, we, we've gotten used to. And so maybe you've heard the story before. I would just ask you to be in it with me. Remember hearing it for the first time. And maybe this is your first time, and I would pray that you would soak it up. So here's how our story starts. Before there was anything before there was absolutely positively anything, there was God. And our story starts with God. And he is perfect. He is absolute. He is loving. Every attribute is found. It's consummated in who he is. And God knows this truth because he made it to be this way. When God receives glory... He has insane amounts of joy, but there's more to that because God is three persons. Each person is fully God and there is one God. So the Holy Spirit, God, the father and God, the son are sitting there as they give glory to each other. There's unbelievable amounts of joy. So God knows that the object that gives him glory gets crazy amounts of joy. How awesome is that? So knowing that, hey, when I get glory, I get joy, but you get your ultimate joy in me. When you give me glory, you get the ultimate, the apex of what joy is. And so he says, man, I want other things to share in this. So he begins to create uh, stars as he makes the universe and he creates uh, earth and he makes the, the dirt and he makes the mountains and he makes the trees. And he says, bring me glory, bro. 
That's all I want you to do. Psalms 19, one through four, the skies are displaying his craftsmanship. It's all about him. Bring me glory, bring me glory, bring me glory. But at the end of the day, trees don't find joy. So what he does, the apex of his creation is he makes man. And when he makes man, something really cool, a sidebar for this is he makes man in, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, in the image of God, he made them. Um, he made man in the image of God, male and female, he made them which maybe you'll get, how crazy is it? He only makes Adam in this moment, but verse 27 tells us male and female, he made them. So there's this mysterious cosmic idea that Adam, not only am I creating you to bring me glory, to give you joy, but I'm thinking of these cats who are gonna be sitting in church in Arcadia some thousands of years later because male and female, I made them to bring me glory that would bring them joy. How crazy. So, so here's our story. He makes it and things are awesome because everything that they're doing is bringing God glory and they are finding their joy and they are at peace and everything is so awesome. They're eating guacamole and playing chess with real rhinos and they're, they're just, it's great, okay? And so they're, they're doing this thing and they're walking this thing out and for whatever reason, for whatever reason in this moment, man chooses not God. So to not get lost in the semantics of it, he chooses not God. I'm going to find my joy in something else. I'm going to find my joy and not give you glory. What? But, but all the joy, everything you're looking for is found in me. Why, why would you try to find joy in anything else? And so man chooses not God and things get crazy. Like it doesn't make sense because man's purpose was to bring glory to God. And so when you lose your purpose, you lose your heading. When you don't have a heading, you're, you're just running into things. There's, there's no which way to go about it. I don't know what I'm doing because I don't have a purpose. And so in this moment, man is broken and he realizes it's a lot harder to, to dig and he realizes um, it, it, him and God are broken and, and him and his wife are broken and there's this messed up thing about it. Um, Genesis 6 actually tells us that the thoughts of man become continually evil. Even moving forward in our timeline, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart of man is naturally wicked. I mean, we're later told in Ephesians 2 that by nature now we're children of wrath. So before being created to bring glory to God, to find joy in God, now things are broken. And, and because things are broken, because it's not going right, he, he finds this remnant of people, he calls this remnant of people to be his people, and they can't get it right. He gives them a law and says, I want you to follow these rules so you can be my people. And they cannot get this thing right. So they do all these things to try to get it right, but they can't. And they keep over and over failing. And so God is looking down and saying, this is not right. You were not created to do this. There has to be punishment because you're choosing the wrong thing. There are consequences. And every single person in here resonates with that. Four months ago, a 26-year-old mother takes a pillow and smothers her two baby twin boys because she wants her life back. Not even two months ago, a man lights a school on fire in Nigeria. So just under 20 kids under the age of 10 are burned alive. Feel that. Feel justice rise up in you. You were created in his image and you know that deserves justice. That's not right. That's not the way it should be. That needs to be punished. You feel it. You, you know it. And God is looking down saying that is not the way it was created to be. That deserves punishment. And I'm a just God. And because I'm a just God, I will bring justice. Yet at the same time, he has more mercy than we know what to do with. So he's looking down on his creation saying, I made you to bring me glory. 
because it will bring you joy, but you keep trying to find joy in, in other things. You can't fix this, so I will. I'm going to bring my justice. So now we're down the timeline. I'm going to, to bring my justice, and, and it's going to come, because you know what? You know it. I know it. It needs to come. It deserves to be punished. So I'm going to bring my justice. I'm just going to bring it on myself. So God becomes a man, and he takes the punishment that you, myself, every man before us should have taken. And so in our story, it's consummated in this idea, this man, Jesus Christ. And, and maybe you don't know his story, so let me, let me tell you a couple highlights and how he takes this. Um, in the book of John, just a couple things of what Jesus goes through. Um, his friends betray him, which one of his, his good friends betray him, which is a, a parable for the cosmic relationship we have with God. Um, other friends leave him in John 18. Um, they put a crown of thorns on his head in uh, 19. He stands before Pilate, also in 19, 1 through 6, and he's chosen, uh, a murderer is chosen over him. He's flogged, he carries his cross to the top of a mountain to be crucified, and he does it all while he's naked. So in this moment, just, just a good picture of what, what's looking at, the God who is over here, who is before time, who made man to find joy, like everything is to bring me glory, and by bringing me glory, you get joy. That same God becomes a man, and he's standing before this man named Pilate, and he's standing there, and he's looking at the people he created to bring him joy, and Pilate says, I'll tell you what, I'll let one of these dudes go. You can either have Barabbas or you can have Jesus, who you want. Now keep in mind, Barabbas has murdered, murdered their friends. He has robbed their family. So in this moment, who do you want? The man, Pilate doesn't say this, but the man who, who ultimately wants you to bring him glory, to give yourself joy, or the man who's murdered your family. We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. But Barabbas is a murderer. Yeah, I know, he killed my cousin, but I'll take him over the God of the universe. And so a perfect picture of this is now Jesus is taken through being flogged. He goes up this mountain and he is crucified. And ultimately we find, though the physical pain is crazy, ultimately what we find is him in this moment saying, God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time ever and the last time ever, Jesus, the son, is removed from the presence of God the Father. And he feels what it's like to be without him. And you know who should have felt that? You, me, us. So he feels the weight of what it's like to be alone. Wayne Grudem, a professor across the street at Phoenix Seminary, has a great way to explain this. He says, far worse than desertion by even the closest of human friends was the fact that Jesus was depraved of his closeness to his father that he had been in deepest joy of his heart for all of his earthly life. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He showed that he was finally cut off from the sweet fellowship of his heavenly father and that he had his unfailing source and his inward strength of an element of his greatest joy in a life filled with sorrow. So there is this physical take the punishment because I'm just. There's a spiritual, a mental take the punishment because I'm just. And taking it upon himself, Jesus does something crazy because back in our story over here, what happened is God gave man life. Man chose sin, which brought death. God becomes man, chooses to use death to beat sin, which brings us life. <laughs> crazy. So there's no better way to, to picture this. My, my, um, my son, Corbin, he's five. We spank our kids, bring it down about seven notches. Um, I know that, yeah, spank your kids. Um, yeah, we spank our kids. And I, honestly, I would love to walk you through, like, if you have any questions, 
just e- shoot me an email as to why we do that. Um, Sean Morton said at, at uh, redemptionaz.com, uh, and I will answer any questions that you have. <laughs> and I would love to meet with you for long periods of time to talk about this. Um, but essentially, we spank our kids, okay? Now, the thing is, Candace and I only spank our kids when they ask to be spanked. They're like, hey, Dad, would you mind reminding me that I have parameters? That, like, there's things that I can't do because you love me? I, I forgot that. Would you mind telling me? Sure, Corbin, yeah, I'll remind you of that. I mean, I told you no, and, and so let me remind you that there's parameters. So one day, Corbin asked me to spank him. And so um, I took him to the back room, and... Um, I said, okay, Corbin, do you know why you're getting spanked? Yeah, I did this. You understand that, that there's a punishment to that. You understand? Yes, I understand. So he got that, that there needed to be justice, that there, there needed to be a punishment. And I felt led in that moment to really begin to open up the gospel to him. Um, and so I said, okay, Corbin, look at me. You deserve punishment and you admit that. And so we're, you're going to get punishment. And so I put my hand on the dresser and I said, Corbin, look at me. And I smack my arm three times as hard as I can, much harder than I would have hit him. I said, Corbin, look at me. Look at my arm, buddy, Okay. Do you see how you deserve punishment, but daddy took the punishment? Like there should have been punishment, but daddy took that punishment. Do you understand? He's like, yeah, I like flowers, okay? <laughs> now, now, he's getting it. I think he's getting it. Um, un- unfortunately, from that time on, every time he was in trouble and he asked to be spanked, he's like, well, why don't you just take it? I'm like, uh, you're going to get punished for that. Um, so so he, this is a perfect picture of if, if in this moment trying to teach man, I took it. It, it, it. It's taken care of. There was justice served and there was mercy given. And this is a perfect. And, and here it is. That's the what. That's our what. Verses 23 and 24. That is our what. That you were a sinner. That I was a sinner. That we deserve punishment. And God brought the punishment. I mean, he, he's not shady. He brought the punishment. He just brought it on himself. So he brings this on himself. That is our what. The thing is... Um, now we're going to go to verses 25 and 26, and I want us to answer this question, well, how? Like, how does this man, Jesus, dying, or you taking the punishment for your, your son, like, how does that save me? Like, how, how does that, and this is where we get real, like, it's going to get weighty, and I just want you to track with me, because there's some kind of mental, ethereal stuff that I want us to go at, and if you can stay with me till the end, I promise it will cause fruit from the gospel. So for us to know the how, let's, um, let's read the verse again. Now we're in verse 25. We just read, I'll read 24 so we we can kind of track from there what we just talked about. We're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, here's the how. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So here's the how. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. What does that mean? So, so let's go back to our story. Remember when Adam fell? There's a part when, when, when Adam and Eve chose not God. Um, God did something because Adam and Eve are looking at each other and they're like, well, we're naked. And Adam's like, yeah, I kind of like it. And he's like, no, we should probably get clothes. And um, so they're looking at each other and like, this is awkward. Like what before wasn't causing shame is, is all of a sudden causing shame and, it, and it's messed up. So what God does is he takes this cow, this buffalo, whatever it is, and he kills this animal and takes the hide of this animal to cover Adam and Eve, essentially foreshadowing this idea. I'm covering your sin. I'm covering your sin. What you see as sin in this moment, I'm covering this sin. And later on, as he gave those rules that we talked about, he continues to go, because that that was a good foreshadowing of what was going to be brought essentially in the law. So here we go. Just track with me. This is what God says. That was, that was one moment, but here's what I want to do from this moment in the Old Testament before Jesus. I want you to create me a house. 
I want you to create me this building. It's, it's a pretty good-sized building. Maybe imagine the size of this. And in that house, this, and maybe some of you guys know it, the tabernacle, I want you to put the, a room. And in the, in the middle of this room, there's going to be a golden box, which is called the Ark of the Covenant. Like, well, what does any of this have to do? Well, inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there is the law. So before God said, here's these rules. Well, I want to take these rules. I want to put them inside the Ark of the Covenant, this golden box, and they will stand ultimately against you saying, you can't fulfill the law. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to have a high priest. I want you to go. And just like I murdered that animal, I want you to have him kill a goat for himself on the day of atonement. Once a year, have him kill this goat so that he can be sanctified. And then I want you to take another goat. I want you to kill that goat for all the people. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the blood from that goat. And I know, you know, the PETA lovers are just, just track with me for a second. You take the blood of that goat and you sprinkle it on top of that, that gold box, that Ark of the Covenant. And that area where you sprinkle the blood is called the mercy seat. And what happens is that blood will keep separation. So here God dwells on the mercy seat, will keep a separation that the law is going at you. You cannot do enough. You're never going to get it right. But this blood says, okay, but it's been paid for, the fact that we can't get it right. Now they had to do this every year, an imperfect priest, over and over and over and over. Here's what's crazy. Later on, um, we're told in Hebrews chapter 9, um, that the mercy seat, the way that we translate the mercy seat in, in Hebrews um, is hilasterion. It's, it's a Greek word. And um, the, way we would, uh, the way we would give a definition in English to, to that Greek word is um, to make expiation or in one word, propitiation. So when Paul says that the how is propitiation. What he's saying is, remember back in our story in the Old Testament how a priest would have to come and offer and separate you from your sins? Yeah, well, that was imperfect because the priest was imperfect. But Jesus comes on the scene, a perfect priest, and says, I'm going to give my own blood for all, for all time. And so that's what we get this idea of propitiation. Um, R.C. Sproul he says, propitiation means to satisfy the demands of justice. That's what you want to know. If you want to know in, in Hebrews chapter 3 what, or in Romans chapter 3 what he's saying, ultimately Jesus, he, God offers him as propitiation. So he satisfies the demands of justice. There's no better way for us to understand this part of the story than in Hebrews um, chapter 9. Let me read th three verses to you because this really sums up the how of it, okay? But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is not made with human hands, that is to say it is not part of the creation. He did not enter by means of blood or goats or calves, but he entered into the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. So the Old Testament satisfied in outward clean cleanliness. Verse 14, but much more than the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleansing our, our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So Jesus did what was in the Old Testament because this is how it had to be satisfied. He fulfills it. It was a shadow. He fulfills it in completeness. And, and that's our how. But I understand some of us are rumbling like, well, why blood? Why, why does there have to be this sense of blood? Why does there have to be bloodshed? And, and I resonate with that idea. Um, unfortunately, it's a, it's a Western 21st um, century uh, way of thinking when it comes to this idea. Well, why does something have to die? Um, there's a man named Miroslav Wolf. He's in uh, uh, Croatia. 
He writes a thesis, a paper on why the blood. And I want to read it to you. I know I'm reading a bunch of things here, but just listen to what he says. This is what he says. My thesis is that uh, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with the man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. You point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take his sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of that type of thesis of human nonviolence to result in what God refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, the idea will inevitably die like the pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice, deception, and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. So you say, why does there have to be blood? And I I, I need you to feel the weight of what we talked about because those kids, you look down and they're, no, no, there has to be punishment. And he's saying in this moment, no, when I've seen my dad's throat slit, when I see my sister being raped, I want punishment. I want it to be done right. And the only thing I'm going to stand for is if I see that dude's blood on the ground and it feels and it riles up within us, I want it made right. Because when it's about you, you want it made right. And it's more than just getting your coffee cold. It's something deeper that you desire vengeance. And we love it, man. We love it. We have websites uh, devoted to this stuff. Guys breaking into houses and and the woman beats the dude senseless. You're like, yeah. We we have man on fire, law-abiding citizen. Our culture thrives on this idea. But when it comes to blood, why does there have to be blood sacrifice? Ultimately, that's the only thing that's going to take away this sin. And that's what deserves to happen. And that is why there is blood. There's um, a beautiful, beautiful picture of this in um, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I, I started reading this with Corbin. We're just still very early in The Magician's Nephew, and um, we, we're, we're reading through it, and if you haven't seen the movie yet, it's been out for like 10 years. So, and the book's been out for like a million, so let's, come on. Um, so C.S. Lewis writes this, this story, The Chronicles of Narnia, and in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, there's these four kids. One of the kids' names is Edmund, and Edmund does something, um, basically sins against the city that, that in such a way it's, it's punishable by death. So the witch who's in charge of this land says, okay, what you've done is punishable by death. You deserve death. Over here, there's this lion named Aslan who who talks. And if you haven't read the book, you're really lost at this point. There's this talking lion, okay? And he comes and he meets with the witch and he says, I'll tell you what, it is punishable by death. I'll take the death. And so you have this crazy scene where the lion is put up onto this altar table and he's killed by the witch and um, he dies. And uh, the, the two uh, girls come up the next day and they're sitting there and they're weeping over Aslan's death. And they're like, why, why, you know, what had this? And they're, they're sobbing. And eventually the sun is coming up and they realize they need to go. They need to get back to, to what they're doing. So as they turn, the lion is dead on the, uh, the altar. They turn away. They feel this rumbling of the, the, the earth in Narnia and the altar cracks. The table in which Aslan was on is cracked. And they look at that altar and they see nothing. And then Liam Neeson comes in from behind, in front of the sun. He's like, what's up? I'm Liam Neeson. I throat shot people. And so he's kind of doing this thing. And now, I'm sorry, that had nothing to do with it. That was a completely different movie. Aslan never said that. Let's stay on focus, Sean. Here we go. Okay. Um, so the lion comes back to life. And this is what he says. This is Aslan's response to um, the, these two girls as to what happened, how this thing played out. Here's the response um, to it. He says, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. 
Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have gone and looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before the time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would be cracked and death itself would start working backwards. Yes. Okay, so, so C.S. Lewis in this moment is like, let me tell you how it is, homie, okay? Um, he lays out this idea, this lion saying, hey, let me tell you what this looks like. M- my death happened, and there may have been a looking like it was all over, and I'll use the term that he used, but there was a deeper magic going on, man. There was something deeper happening by his blood being shed on the cross. There was a deeper magic. And one day in our story, death itself will be turned backwards. Now, now this is our how, right? So, so I, I hope, and if you don't get that, I, I, would sh- I would love to talk with you afterwards. Why the how, why Jesus dying does this because he fulfills this idea and it's a perfect picture with, picture with Aslan dying there. Now the table's cracked, the altar is closed. There's, there's no way... You can't bring anything else to the altar. So in the Old Testament, there's no other, no more sprinkling of the blood of goats. No more of that because Jesus did it all. He paid it all. Why? Like, why would God send his son to do this? And I I don't think we think of this a lot from from the picture of our father, like, like God the father, because if someone was to roll up into the Myers home, take a gun and say, I'm gonna kill you or your son, I would take the gun and point it right here, me, all day long. You wanna know why? Because it would be a lot easier for me to die than watch my son to die, much less kill him myself. So he must really care about something. He must be really motivated by something. And that something is found in verse 26. So let me read it to you. And I pray that you would track with me and you would see the depths of what God is trying to say in this moment because he put forward the evidence of his son. He put him forward as a propitiation. Why does that save us? But more importantly, why did he do it? He did it for this reason. Verse 26. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're given in verse 26, two reasons, 25 and 26, two reasons. Um, Here's the first reason. In our story, if you were to look backwards, you would look at a man named David and you would be like, David's a good dude, right? Like he's a man after God's own heart. This is what the Bible says about this guy. A man after his own heart. Here's the problem with David. One day he looks down and he sees a woman that he likes. The problem is she's married. He says, I'll kill her husband so I can have her. And you think, that's not cool. That's not okay. He's gonna be punished. No, he's not punished. Matter of fact, they have a kid and that kid is the wisest man to walk the earth. So he's actually blessed in what happens. That's not okay. That is not okay. And we look back at that and we say, why? And he says, in my divine forbearance, I passed over these sins because I know they would be found on the cross. And the only reason David is a man after my own heart is he has faith in the future me on the earth. That one day I will save him. That Abraham knows I will save him. More than that, in verse 26, it's this. 
His divine forbearance, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's more than that, not just looking back, but at the present time, he's saying, you think you're upset about those kids? You, you think you're upset about those kids? You think you're upset about your mom dying or your dad dying? You think, I'd, listen, I'm the standard and, and I weep and I am just, and I am justifier, and I care enough about it, I worry enough about it, I'm in the situation enough about it to send my son to die. I'm righteous. I am both just and justifier. There might be some question, like what God's justice looks like. An an old dude named um, Charles Spurgeon, he wrote a great thing on this. Let me me read it to you because it it really shows God's justice in this because this is what he's defending, this idea of, um, before I read it, let me say this. In the English, we have righteousness and like and justify. The problem is in the Greek, there's diakosune. It's, It's one Greek word and we have two different things. The reason is because we don't say like, I righteousify. No, we say I justify. Or we don't say like, you have justiceness. No, we have an action, we have a, a verb and a noun and something they're playing. And so what we do is English, we, we have these two separate words for the same Greek word. So God is saying, I'm defending my righteousness so that you will know I am just. Spurgeon says this, just reminding of us of uh, his justice. It is true that God is just. Let old Sodom tell you how God rained fire and brimstone in heaven upon man's iniquities. Let a drowning world tell you how bubbling water sprang up and swallowed up man alive. Let the earth tell you, for she opened her mouth when cities of old rebelled against him. Let the, bur- uh, let the burned cities of Nineveh and the tattered relics of Tyre and Sidon tell you that God is just and will by no means spare the guilty. Let hell's bottomless lake declare what is the awful vengeance of God against the sins of man. Let the sighs and groans and moans and shrieks of spirits condemned of God rise in your ears and bear witness that he is a God who will not spare the guilty who will not wink at iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will have vengeance upon every rebel and will give justice its full satisfaction in every offense. He is gonna take care of it. He has taken care of it. So there's a worry within us. God, even today, why are you letting this happen? Like, I don't get it because we look at tsunamis and we look at earthquakes and we look at um, uh, these terrible deaths and we see these insane injustices and, and why? Even following this court trial, like why, and what side you land on, it's irrelevant. But, but for some of you, you're like, why would, would this man who killed a young black man get away with it? And some of you are like, well, he should have, blah, blah, blah. Listen, it, within you, there's a sense of justice. You want it to happen. And you're like, God, why? Hey, bro, I'm just, and I'm justifier. I set the standard. And so God declares this, I care enough about it to watch my son be murdered and feel alone without me. Have you ever seen your kid lost? He doesn't know what to do and he starts freaking out. And in this moment, I'm willing to do this to show you that I am righteous and I care about these things. He sets the standard. He is just. He is justifier. Now this is great, great knowledge to have. And, and it's good for us to know the deep depths of the why. Simon Sinek in 2009, um, he, he did a TED talk And so what he said, he said, most companies tell their employees the what. So he drew this big circle, the what, here's the what. They know the what. 
okay? But very few, maybe less than half of the companies uh, in the world tell their employees ultimately the how. So we know what we do. We make burgers, we, we make computers, but here's how we do it. Here's how we get the patties. Here's how we do this. But only 1% of all companies in the world, the most successful companies, actually tell the people who are engaging on them on a good level why. And, and those companies are successful because everyone's on board. And so, so let me say this. When you begin to look at your pain and your suffering because it's real and know that Jesus, Hebrews 4, he is a high priest who is faithful. When you know that ultimately he did this for his righteousness and your life is built in to bring him glory, which will bring you joy, we're all on the same page. And the mission of God becomes all the glorious. So this is the why. And though it's great to know it's real hard to get our hands around, like, what do we do with this knowledge? This idea of propitiation. This idea that Adam's sins were imputed onto us. We imputed our sins onto Jesus, and then we weren't left alone to try to earn grace, but Jesus imputed his righteousness onto us. It's like we're given stuff that we didn't even deserve. Life, giving away our sins, righteousness, all these things. What do we do with this? And, and here's, here's what I would say we do with this. First, to, to you, if you're sitting out there right now and you say, um, and I, I don't know Jesus, and I'm still trying to figure this Jesus thing out, which I think is great, and I'm glad you're here um, because I, I think uh, most of us wouldn't be willing to admit that we'd engage somebody in another religion on, a, on a, the same level, but you're sitting here right now and you're saying, I'm still trying to figure this Jesus thing out. Here's the thing that I would say to you. Think about what I just walked us through. That's it. Like, really think about it because it's, it's an eternal deal, so it deserves some weight in the way you think about it. Take some time and think about this worldview, and, and I promise you a couple things. Using reason, logic, the Holy Spirit, you will see that this worldview explains things and gives things that, that no other religion can. There are these dead ends that I have found personally in other religions that fall short. And within Christianity, there are so many questions answered, and there are a lot of questions that are answered but promise to be answered. So I would just say challenge it. And, and honestly, if, if you're unsaving here, listen, you don't got to be a Christian to join a small group. We have something called redemption communities. You don't have to be, I would say get around Christians. Like you ain't meeting a chick and be like, hey, you want to get married? No, like you're crazy. You date her first. I would say date us for a little bit. I know some of you theological juggernauts don't like that idea, but if you're not a Christian in here, man, find yourself a, a, a redemption community, get in it, hang around some Christians and see if we're the real deal. And that, now Christians, that puts it on you to live this beast out. But at the end of the day, if you're not a Christian, Man, find some Christians, be around, ask questions, get at this. It's an eternal deal. It deserves some weight. Now, if you are a Christian in here, um, this story, this what of what God did, how Jesus dying, and why God sent his son um, should do two things within us. And, and here's the first thing, and I, I want to very much stress this. Here's the, the, the first one. God seems to, in our story, take sin very serious. I wonder if he would take sin as serious as you do. Your sin, if he would take it as nonchalantly as you do. Oh yeah, no, I know it's tough, man. I, I know it's hard not to sleep with her. You know what though? You'll probably be stronger if you keep staying the, the night in her, in her, in her room. Uh, you'll, you'll be stronger, don't worry. I, you'll, you'll figure it out. No, he cared enough to send his son. He cared enough to, to do this. He takes sin serious. And so as Christ followers, let me gently yet aggressively say this, take it serious. It's not to be fondled with loose hands. It's something very serious. So serious, the God of the universe was willing to die for it. Now, the other side, the second part of that is, because you take sin serious doesn't mean you earn God. It doesn't mean you deserve God. Because if we remember Aslan, he, he's, he's taken off the altar. And what happens to the altar? It's broken. You bringing your not doing things to the altar, God doesn't be like, yep, that's why I love you. 
He doesn't look down at you, maybe getting it right today, maybe coming to church afterwards, being a good father, good mother, maybe even reading and praying tonight. God doesn't look down and be like, oh, now you get it. I love you. No, the altar is closed because he is just and justifier. You didn't justify yourself. He justified you. And so for you to resonate on this fact, um, Vodi Bakum, a pastor uh, in the States here, he says that uh, uh, the gospel, we don't like it because it makes us break out into moral hives. Like when we hear the gospel, it does something with us. So, so you're telling me that I need to fight sin, but I only need to fight sin because I see the beauty of the cross. Now, if I fight sin, I'm not, I'm not earning my way. So there's nothing I could do outside of really just love Jesus. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you, bro. But that, that's exactly what I'm telling you. That's what the gospel tells us. That there's nothing you can do to earn it, but because we don't like that, because we're in a, a country that you have to earn and step up the corporate ladder, I have to earn it. And I break out into, as Vodi Bakum said, moral highs. I have to do. The altar is broken. It's paid for. And whoever has faith in Jesus Christ knows that he is both just and justifier, and he has justified us if we put our faith in him. The trick to all this, and this is how I'll close, is I'm sitting there with my oldest son, Corbin, again, and, and we're wrestling, and Titus, my three-year-old, comes running in, and he says, um, I'm on your team, Daddy. I'm on your team. I'm on your team, and I'm wrestling Corbin because he knows he can't beat up Corbin, so he wants to be on my team, and Corbin keeps replying, no, Titus, no, you're not. You're not. You're not on Daddy's team. You're not on Daddy's team, and I'm looking at Titus. Okay, okay Titus, look at me. You're on my team. We're on, we're on each other's team, and Corbin's like, no, Titus, you're not on Daddy's team, and I'm getting ready to throw Corbin through the wall, and I'm like, no, Look at me, Titus, you're on my team. But he's looking at me and he's hearing Corbin say, you're not on daddy's team, you're not on daddy's team, you're not on daddy's team, and he's getting upset. No, I am on daddy's team, no, I am. And he's getting very upset, even though I'm looking at him, even though I'm looking at him, saying, Titus, you are on my team. You are, he, all he hears is Corbin. In this moment that we would recognize that we don't need to hear ourselves or hear the devil tell us, you need to start doing it or you're not gonna be okay. Oh, you messed up, oh, start over. Start over, it's all over for you. Just start this beast over. No, you're on daddy's team. He's telling you, you're on my team. Do you have faith in me? Do you trust me for your salvation? You're on my team. This is what he's declaring from the mountaintops, that the gospel is good. It is good news because you are a sinner and you deserve death, but God gives you life because he took the punishment. If you have faith in him, you'd see that he is both just and justifier. And at the end of the day, you'd recognize, and I'm on daddy's team, and I don't care what you say, Corbin. Well, you wouldn't call Satan Corbin, but you would probably call <laughs> Let me uh, read this for you. Another Vody Bauckham. This is just a one-line quote, and it's a question that I'm going to pray for you. And here's the question. Is the grace that saves you the same grace that keeps you? Whether you're saved or not saved in here, it's grace that saves you, but please do not hear that your works get you there um, after that point. It's also what keeps you. Let me pray for you. God, we, uh, we're grateful for who you are and um, we're thankful that at the end of the day, we don't need to earn grace, that we don't need to... Uh, and we don't need to, to fight for this, but Jesus, we recognize it's about you and it's, it's about who you are. Jesus, we thank you that you are the visible image of the invisible God. You're the firstborn over all creation. God, that all things are created by you, whether on heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or powers, all things are made through you and for you. 
God, you are before all things and in you all things are held together. Jesus, you're the head of the body, which is the church. You are the beginning. You're the firstborn from among the dead that in everything you may be preeminent. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in you. And it's by you that you're reconciling all things back to you, whether in heaven or on earth. You're making peace by the blood of your cross. I pray that we would resonate with that, we would trust that, that we wouldn't try to earn it. We would remember the, the what of our story, the how come Jesus you dying, and ultimately, God, why you would send your son. May we trust that you are both just and justifier. You are ultimately righteous. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.